Welcome to another Biotocast recording. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with fan favourite Steve Grand. Steve, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Tom, how are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Is it sweltering where you are? Uh, sweltering is not the word. No, it's like an oven. <laughs> yes, yes. So when we last spoke, I think it was about a decade ago, you'd just gotten the, I think you'd just successfully funded Grand Droids, and I think we were talking about communities and Kickstarter and these kind of things. What has gone on in the past decade? Oh, well, the whole decade. Is it really a whole decade? I think so. You're right. It is a decade. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a lot of work. I've done a lot of programming. I've thrown a lot of code away and started again about five times. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, that's the way these things tend to happen. But it's coming on. But finally, after 10 years, most of my ideas turn out to have been workable and uh, it's um getting to the point where I can start to share it with people now. Wonderful. So before doing the podcast recording, I hit up YouTube, put in Grandroids uh, to see what the, you know, what the current visualization that people were seeing was. Can you describe what Grandroids is for the folks listening in who may not know? Um, I can try. It would be so much easier to show people, but uh, this is radio, so I have to do it in words. Um, Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll start with, the kind of games I play, okay? I, I, I only ever play flight simulators. Mm. And uh, and the thing about flight simulators is that somebody makes a bunch of aircraft and makes it as authentic as they can, and they make a world that you can fly around in, and then if they know what they're doing, they step back and let you decide what to do next, you know? Um, and that's what I like, and that's what I try to do with artificial life too. I try to make artificial life forms, and give them a world to live in, and then people. Then I try and step back and not have people feel like I can breathing down their neck, telling them what to do. So Grand Rose is that. It's the latest iteration in oh god, uh, forty-five years of making artificial life forms, um, and I've got better and better at it as those years have gone on. So, so it's what's currently called Grand Rose is a three D. Um, bunch of creatures and a world for them to live in. The, the weirdest thing about doing this kind of thing, I don't, don't know whether you find the same, is trying to decide what the creatures should look like and where they should live. Because mm. um, they have to live somewhere and they have to look like something. And yet they could look like anything and live anywhere. You know, It could be on Mars, it could be under your carpet. It, it trying to narrow down an infinite range of possibilities to one is always the tricky bit, I find. So in this case, I've got a kind of backstory that I can use to fr- make a framework for the for the game, but it's just the backstory. It's just there for me to, to make sensible decisions about what the place should be like and what objects should be there and what the creatures are like. But it's, it's supposed to be like a flight simulator. You know, I, I make artificial life forms and then people do stuff with them. And I have plenty of experience to know that they're more than capable of doing things with them that I'd never thought of. Um, so these creatures, well, the current current range of creatures, they look like alpacas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love alpacas. I think they're scruffy little creatures. And I especially like them when they've been, you know, had all their wool taken away and they've got these crazy hairstyles, you know? Certainly. <laughs> uh, so, so they look like alpacas but they have a little stubby horn in the middle of their forehead. Um, and so they're really wannabe unicorns. 
You know, they, in in their in their hearts, they wish they were dashing white steeds for the magnificent horn, uh, but they're not. <laughs> and and so they, they're kind of the Peruvian cousins of unicorns, the Peruvicorn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the the idea is that they're virtual creatures, but nobody especially wants them. They're not really dashing enough. And so I've got this idea as a backstory in which we, the, the users, will be members of... So, so this all takes place in a little English village mm. um, called um, Frampton Gurney. Um, and the idea is that we belong to the Frampton Gurney Zoological Society. All right, that's that's the, the premise. Certainly. Um, so, so when I go live soon, I hope, with a Patreon... That's what people will be joining is is the Frampton Gurney Zoological Society. Interesting. Um, and so the the task is just to look after these creatures um, and care for them and study them and try to understand what it's like inside their minds. But uh, so so the, the you have to have some kind of framework, some kind of narrative. So so the backstory is that there was once this guy um, called Samuel Dunmore. Um, back in Victorian times, who started the society, and um, and he started it because he was concerned about the the the, the um, what it was like for these poor fantasy creatures who lived in children's stories of the time. Mm. You know? So so um, like Alice Little, who was Alice in Wonderland, might have donated um, what do they have uh, a mock turtle, say, yes. to the society. And the society puts it in their little nature reserve and looks after it. And then, and you know, whoever heard of borough groves ever since Victorian times? But so, so the, so the idea is that we get to look after creatures that come from fantasy stories, but aren't really wanted anymore. So it's kind of land where legends go to die. And um, so that 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 provides the framework. So these creatures, they're wannabe unicorn, unicorns. Mm. Uh, but they can't get the jobs, you know. Hollywood's not really interested in unicorns that look like alpacas. Um, and you know what happens to a dragon with a broken wing? They can't play computer, can't be stars in computer games anymore. You know? No. So, so that's that's the basic idea, the framework. But it is just a framework, you know. If people aren't interested in that, then they don't have to be. It doesn't matter. It's just that I have to make decisions about what the creatures should look like and where they should live and what objects should be around the place. And thanks to Samuel Dunmore and forming this society, that gives me a framework to think with. Does that make sense? It does seem fascinating, Tim. I mean, one of the things, I mean, you and I have lived in parallel in some regard in terms mm-hmm. of being the far-flung parts of the US where most civilised people would never admit that they lived. And this idea <laughs> of Frampton Gurney as a concept, I mean, it, it seems to harken back to a kind of kind of gentler time for Steve Grant when you were in the UK. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I'm, am I right that you haven't returned to the UK in the past however many no, years no, since we started no, talking? I'm so still in the US, t- in Phoenix, talk, Arizona. Talk a little bit about at why it's important for this to be a UK village, why Frampton Gurney is so central um, in the story behind Grand Droids. I mean, this is something I just find fascinating, probably because I've, lived some of this myself in terms of being an expat kind of away mm-hmm. from the place where one is originally from. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, it's just what I know. You, know you you lived in the UK too, so you know what it's like. There's a huge, rich history. There's mythology 
seeping out of every pore. So it's a very easy place to to um, to make mythological stories happen. Um, and uh, so Fram- Frampton, there's a, a, a little village called Frampton Cotterill, and uh, there's various places with Gurney in the name because it was a family in, in the Middle Ages. And so Frampton Gurney is a made-up place, but it's based on my life in Somerset in the southwest of England, which is very wet and green and uh, not a bit like living in Phoenix. <laughs> so, so I have a kind of fondness. I know what it's like there. I know what it feels like. I know all the myths and stories of Glastonbury and King Arthur and all, all that kind of stuff. So it's there in my blood. And so it's good. It's a good framework to work from. And it's, and it's also, it is more relaxing than many other places in the world. Um, and I want this game from a game perspective. I want it to be somewhere people want to go to relax. What do they call it these days? Um, there's a word for it. Um, Cozy. cozy, cozy games. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to be a cozy game, somewhere where people want to go and hang out to get out of this world, and um, you know, hang out with their creatures, just sit on the park bench and watch the sun go down while the creatures play down by the river. That kind of, that kind of ethic, you know. And and so I know that works in in the West Country of England because it, I'm familiar with it. I don't think it will work so great in the desert. Although I do have a hot house, I do have a huge Victorian greenhouse, so I can make a desert. Um, so, so I've got various biomes in the world because um, it's a kind of nature reserve. You know, it's just it was just Samuel Dunmore's home um, in Victorian times, and he made a little nature reserve to try and look after these threatened creatures from you know Alice in Wonderland and Narnia and so on. So I've recreated some of those. Places as biomes in in the in the virtual world, um, and there's nothing in them yet because I don't I only have one species of creature. But you know that's what I'm going to be working on. One of the things that's fascinated me about your trajectory is your fan base, because mm-hmm. I think you have a particular group of passionate. They're unique. There's something mm-hmm. about folks that have followed your work for, as you say, the past at least thirty years. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how the Kickstarter? I mean. I've looked at Kickstarters over the years and I've seen various Kickstarters were funded, never did anything. And in your case, you were funded and continue to do things for more than a decade based on this interaction. Can you talk a little bit about the fan base? Oh, they're wonderful people. Yes. The, the, the strange thing about my creatures fan base is that they know far more about creatures than I do mm. um, because they just took it and ran with it. You know, as soon as I'd written it, I was on to the next thing and became a director of the company and all that kind of horrible stuff that really ruined my life. And, and so it just, you know, I had nothing more to do with it, really. Other people took it over and so on. But the fan base, they just they just ran with it. I mean, within a few days of the creatures being launched, there was a new species uh, because people had figured out how to, to hybridize between the two species that were already there. Um, and people started writing books about how the genome worked and, um, and stuff. And then they started creating their own mythology around it. And so now they get quite upset with me sometimes because my mythology doesn't match theirs, you know, mm. <laughs> and they're, they're the ones who are right. I mean, I only have what was in my head when I wrote it and they've taken it since. And so if there's a discrepancy between what they think a, a she should look like. And what I think, then they're right and I'm wrong. Mm. 
but they're wonderful people. And I don't want to insult anybody by saying this, but I think it's important that a huge pr- proportion of Creatures fans are on the autistic spectrum somewhere. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's very damning to say of one's fan base, Steve, but continue. Well, continue. it isn't. No, it's like, um, I, I treat it as a compliment. Very I good. I'm on, on the autistic spectrum too. Certainly. A lot of us in tech are. Amen. Um, and um, so it's a compliment. It's a superpower as far as I'm concerned. You know, for some people, it, it is a handicap and can be very hard for people to be just totally overwhelmed with things all the time um, and it's been hard for me in, in some ways mm. like I'm very shy because of that because I'm forever kind of firing on all cylinders to try to keep up with the social side of things and you know um, but anyway an awful lot of creatures users are autistic in to some degree or another and uh, so they live in their own minds you know they, they, they don't need other people so much but they do need friendship and companionship and things to think about and so on and uh, and creatures seem to do that for them mm. uh, it wasn't my intention it's just i made something i wanted and it turned out there were more people who wanted it than i expected um so that's what i'm you know i now have that audience in mind <laughs> i'm not going to tailor it for, for for that kind of people but there are people who i know will like it and there are people who i know won't and i don't care about the people who won't mm. <laughs> if you see what i mean well it's immaterial what they do from your perspective one of the mm. things that i find curious is the nature of your fan base not even I, I don't know whether they devote time to thinking about this but they believe very heavily that you're a capital s scientist and this is something that has always struck me because i've always felt myself as a capital h hobbyist at best but all your fans as they put together these web pages and stuff associated with you know the history of creatures and moving into obviously grand roads now they very definitely at the start of it will always say that you are a capital s scientist do you feel like you're a capital s scientist how does that work Mm, no <laughs> but yes in a way um I, i'll tell you what i think of myself as and that's a cyberneticist mm-hmm. um that's what i've always been that's what my dad brought me up to be and he taught me electronics when i was eight and um, so i've been exposed to ideas like that and i spent my whole life looking at the world in terms of feedback mm. and dynamics and i'm good at that and i know a lot about it not necessarily a huge amount about the history of cybernetics itself, but that's what I am, is a cyberneticist. But you go telling people you're a cyberneticist, and it gets you nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so more or less, as a general rule, if somebody expects me to be a game developer, I tell them I'm a physicist. physicist and if they expect me to be a biologist, I tell them a psych- I'm a psychologist. And <laughs> and then they put two and two together and think I'm a scientist. Yes. But I actually had no contact with the scientific world at all until Creatures was about to be released. And um, and I met this guy called Dave Cliff from the University of Sussex, who um, he was actually sent out to check out whether I was kosher mm. or not, and talking sense. And um, we got on really well, and uh, he liked what I was doing, and introduced me to other people in the scientific community. And so for a decade or so, I was going to conferences and you know, spending my time in universities giving talks and stuff. And then I felt pretty much like a scientist and I was welcome. Um, but it's never been my job. I, I, I mostly think of myself as an engineer. 
Yeah, it seemed to be cool when you moved to Arizona. You had a, a fan base locally in Arizona. I mean, obviously, you tick a number of boxes. Um, your relationship with the now king. You know, there are a variety of things which um, make you a relatively unique cat, particularly for the part of the US that you're in. Can you talk <laughs> a little bit about how the move has changed the people around you? Um, what, what are your feelings associated with your current cadre that you have around you? Uh, well, I, I don't even know who they are. Uh, <laughs> I, my best friend lives in Washington, D.C., so she's 2,000 miles away. Um, and I don't really have any contact with people down here in the in the valley, in the, the hot part of Arizona. I used to have friends up in Flagstaff, which is up in the mountains, and I loved living up there. That was fantastic. And they were very friendly people, and uh, I loved Flagstaff enormously. In fact, I, I ended up living there because I... I had a long and dark and horrible time for a few years. I got divorced and stuff and fled to the mountains. And I came out to the West and just spent a few weeks just, you know, minding my own business, wandering around the mountains, seeing the Grand Canyon and other places I've never been to before. And, uh, and I passed through Flagstaff two or three times and I just adored it there. It just had something for a start at 7,000 feet, which I, I love being up at high altitude. Um, the flag was really nice. In fact, the, the, I'm, I decided I was going to settle there. I moved in, and within three days, I was on TV, <laughs> um, which is quite a strange way to be welcomed <laughs> to a new city. Certainly. I just fell in with somebody who, who made TV programs, gave him a little donation, and it turned out I was the only person who had ever donated to his TV program. <laughs> so uh, he interviewed me. Anyway, so the so flag is very nice. Phoenix, I'm sure there are lovely people down here, but it's so hot, you can't even go outside most of the year. Certainly. Um, and like I say, my friend Kimberly is in D.C., so we talk most days on the phone, so I don't actually have much contact with the Southwest, but I do like it here. Uh, I, it's it's laid back and calm, and it's not frenetic like England can be. Mm. Like driving, for example, is, you know, as you know, in Vegas, I mean, in the city, it's pretty frenetic, but Outside the city, it, you've got big wide roads with nobody on them. And, and that's true here. It's nice and quiet. So I like the laid back nature of the Southwest. Very interesting. Very interesting. So in terms of Grand Droids, mm-hmm. it's just been you working on it. No one else has participated in it or have you had other folks involved with actually the writing of it or just the, um, you know, the use of it? No, it's just me. Um, I know you're a big collaborator and, and uh, open source kind of a guy and I'm the opposite um, but I, I don't you know I completely agree with you I'm not anti-collaboration or open source but in my life it just hasn't worked for me I think oddly and I need to have everything in my head and hold it all together and I don't think I'd be able to do anything that I've done if I did it in collaboration with other people so so I always work alone when I can and I've done this entirely alone it's been a bit off more than I could chew, I have to admit. <laughs> I decided to do things the hard way. So it's been a, a lot of work, but it's coming together now. And what is what is your final view with regards to it? I mean, obviously, you've got the town, you've got the, you know, the history that you've generated. You have these alpaca-like creatures, which have Mm-mm. aspirations to be unicorns. 
<laughs> is the aim that people will come and populate it? Is it a virtual world in terms of it being remote or is it software that's downloaded and held locally on someone's computer? Are they maintaining connection back to the world? Do they put creatures in this environment? What, what's the end state for this thing? Right. It, it, it's localized. So they'll download it and they'll run their version of the world. There's no um, multi-user element. I mean, I know, I know the community needs to grow out of it. Um, <laughs> you've got visitors. I do actually. I'm just hitting mute and we'll just try to evacuate the room as quickly as possible, Steve. Um, actually, well, she could just sit here, actually. It doesn't really matter. She'll just make That's some absolutely fine. talking in the background. So, yes, yeah. I do have my own creatures. <laughs> when, when, when she grows up, I might have finished my game and she might become a fan. Exactly. Let's aim high. Aim high. <laughs> uh, what was I saying? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, it's single user. Uh, but I'll try to have some community building things in it. Uh, but you know, I don't have the resources to do massive multiplayer stuff. Um, and, and it's a problem. I mean, you know, being a, a big open virtual world, there are all sorts of technical issues associated with that. Like in normal games, you know, you, you just don't bother having the bits that aren't needed. Yes. You know, you create them when you need them and you render them when someone's looking at them. But here, it's not just the user who's looking at the world, it's the creatures who are looking at. It. Certainly. And so they need a world to look at, whether you're there or not. So everything has to run all of the time, which is quite demanding. Um, in but, terms um, of the environment you started with, I, I don't really have a sense of the background of this. Was this an existing environment that you picked up, or have you created everything from literally the grass and the trees? The the architecture I find remarkably interesting as well, and the uh, you know the mill house and all these kind of beautiful. Uh-huh. English elements, did you create all of those or did you use existing models when you were creating it initially? No, no, I created, I think, all of them. What I I have used other people's work for, you know, I I use Unity as the game engine. Certainly. And Unity has a big asset store with loads of people who make a living producing assets. So, like the the clouds and the sky somebody else made, the um, terrain tools for dynamically building a terrain somebody else made the grass and the, the shaders needed to render vegetation somebody else made but everything else i did myself um so i'm not a great 3d artist by any means but i mm. know enough um and, and i'll get better i'm sure uh but yeah no it's all me um it's a bit idiosyncratic as a result but have, have you seen pictures of how it is now I've looked at the, the last YouTube I saw, I think, was about nine months ago. Um, so I have a sense of, um, you know, certainly, as you say, the the um, particular structures in the town and the sense really, I mean, when I saw it again, because it had been about probably a decade since I last saw um, how you were developing it, it just struck me that you were kind of harking back to a previous life in some regard. I'm, <laughs> I'm very much interested, could... Could the same exist potentially in Arizona? Could there be desert alpaca-like creatures that existed? I mean, I think what's, uh, as as you just recently heard, my life has changed dramatically in the past couple of years with the addition of two beautiful young daughters. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating is I wasn't actually born in the UK. I was born in Australia. My father was born in the UK. So my daughters don't actually have the same rights I have in the UK. You have this right. notion of by birth or by uh, heritage. And I got to the UK by heritage, not by birth. My daughters have no 
rights in the UK. So it's completely changed my perspective with regards to looking back to potentially one day, you know, retiring in England and now realizing that my family very much is now legally based in the US and I have to change a lot of my perspectives. In terms of the community, in terms of the forces that are driving, you mentioned with creatures, which I think is always fascinating thing to return to, that the user base was able to cultivate their own creatures within a short period of time of it actually being released. Mm-hmm. Do you, is the same phenomenon built into Grandroids in some way? Do you think there'll be, not alpacas, maybe swimming creatures or these kind of things? <laughs> I, I saw someone trying to drown an alpaca on YouTube when I looked it up. Do you get the sense that the community will be driving it in a different direction once it actually comes out? Um, I, I, I fully expect people to be able to uh, make new kinds of creatures, even completely new genetics, new brain models and, and stuff, but it's going to be a lot much a lot harder work for them. Certainly. Um, it just, it's just inevitable. One of the big problems is because it's all done in Unity and I used all these third-party tools for uh, weather and vegetation and such like, I have no rights to distribute those. Mm. And, and so, and, but Unity doesn't yet have great facilities for making things outside the, the engine and then importing them into the engine. So I have some tools that enable that. So you can you can create objects in Blender, say, um, import them into a small Unity world just with the free version of the editor and um, code them in C Sharp and mm-hmm. then import them into the game. So I've made it possible, but it's going to be harder, particularly with creatures, because they are, you know, biologically speaking, many orders of magnitude more complex than... Uh, Yes. Um, So, but but in terms of making, you know, certainly it will be easy, relatively easy for people who are industrious to make new objects for the world and possibly new worlds too. I don't know about that yet. Um, But it's not. I I learned quite quickly that this project is never going to end. Mm. There's never going to be an end date. So it's just a matter of how I manage to bring it out into the open where people can start to tinker with it while I'm still there and changing things and adding to it. Um, so I, so that's why I started this, or I'm starting this idea of a, a learned society, you know, the zoological society, um, because that's a good vehicle for us working together on things once I can open it out um, to, to, to the general public. It, it's been hidden behind closed doors because that was the... Um, that was the perk for people who backed me on Kickstarter was exclusivity. Mm. And, and I don't know that was actually a good decision, but that's the way it was. And so it's all been done in secret up until now. Uh, but soon I'll open it out to other people. Uh, but I need to get to a point where I, it's kind of robust and and safe and I can actually focus on what people need rather than you know, having people collapse upon me and, and then I'll just get into a panic. Mm. But, but yeah, no, it's supposed to be extensible. It's just going to be harder work. And like I say, the biology is incredibly complex. I mean, I, I very much doubt if there's a biological simulation of any kind that's anywhere near as complex as this. Um, just, just the biophysics of it is pretty horrendous. And the brain model is complex, but it's, you know, it's genetic. So all you have to program really is genes. Um, and you can make a different kind of brain if you want to. If you can think of a better idea than mine, then go ahead. Um, so I hope I hope it'll 
grow and spread and people will start their own stories and maybe there'll be an Arizona a bunch of creepers more, more applicable to alpacas really than Somerset. Do you have a time frame with regards to the launch? Um, I need to need, need, need to get it out on Patreon in the next few months because you know, like you say, it did all right on Kickstarter, um, but that only kept me in, you know, software fees and, and food for a short time. My friend is supporting me at the moment, and that's hard on her. Um, and so I need some money. <laughs> Desperately need some income. Mm. So I'm just trying to, to gather the last remnants of the code together and get it robust, and then do the work that's necessary to you know, talk about the backstory and do some blogging and all that kind of thing so they can build up for a Patreon. But it's, it's just a matter of months. Patreon's an interesting model. In fact, it, it lends itself very readily to the kind of thing that you're talking about. So, so you, your aim is to, it's always difficult. Like how much information is enough information before you move to Patreon? How much information? Do you think there's a finite, do you think there's a perfect amount of information that you need to have out before you move to Patreon? Or do you imagine that it'll just get to a critical point where you just put it up on Patreon and continue to uh, provide the information as it comes to you? I'll, I'll put it up as soon as I'm ready, uh, as soon as I can. Um, so the idea is that I'll just, you know, on, on Kickstarter, the people who funded me have been involved with me on the website. We've discussed all this. And, and I've been really bad at actually keeping that up. Um, I don't post very often and stuff, but there's been, you know, thousands of pages of conversations and stuff on this website. And so I know that will work even better on Patreon. Uh, so I just got to set up, um, Discord and, um, blog and all those usual social tools and, and put some graphics together and so on to explain what the hell I'm doing and what all this means. And why would you want to join a weird society in England? Um, and then I'm ready to go. But after that point, the idea is that if you fund me on Patreon, you get the software. And so you get to play with it and be part of it and do stuff with it. Um, and if you don't fund me on Patreon, you can still read the blog and take part in all the other things, the social side. <clears throat> you just don't have the software. You don't have any creatures to play with. Um and so um, um, the hope is to use Patreon as the end product in a way. You know, somebody else worries about the accounting and, and you know, people only have to fund me a tiny amount, a few dollars a month. So it's not a big risk from their perspective. They can step out and go away anytime they want. Um, but I can just carry on doing what I suspect they'll be doing until I'm too old to do it anymore. Um, and hopefully people will pay me to do that. But it's hard to tell because, you know, Patreon started out very much aimed at singers. Uh, you know, the guy who started it, his wife was a singer. And, and it's fine. It was fine originally for people who make individual month by month type products, you know, YouTube, YouTube videos and, and songs and that kind of stuff. And it wasn't really very amenable to my kind of thing, but it's, it's spread out and become broader since then. So I'm hoping it'll. It'll work out. I just need a, you know, a few thousand people to give me a few bucks a month and we'll be in. And in terms of the, yeah, it's just such a brilliant model. Thank you very much for, for talking more about that because I think that's exactly, I mean, it's amazed me how you've been able to carry on just the Patreon folk. I mean, obviously the draw of being in 
you know, in discourse, not discord, but discourse with you <laughs> is motivating enough to, I mean, I think of the, I stopped putting money into uh, Kickstarter because, mm-hmm. you know, a few projects and a few people I knew actually, which are the more disturbing ones where they disappear with your money and you were once friends with them. Um, <laughs> but you have had this legacy of a really very unique users, which you were able to initially cultivate with creatures and this kind of stuff, who that have continued on and have continued on wanting to not only follow your work, but also have periodic conversations with you. And I think Patreon will take that in a, in a perfect direction. In terms of your loyal fan base, can you talk about the past decade worth of interaction that you've had with them? You said thousands of pages. This is something that could become a book in the future. What's your sense with regards to your interaction with your fans? Um, it'll certainly become <clears throat> at least one book in the future because I have a kind of duty to report to the scientific community what I've learned. And uh, I don't write papers, so I'll write a book. But, um, well, I, mostly I try to let them do their own thing and, and stay out of their way. I've always seen my job as a games programmer to be to stay out of people's way. You know, I try to make things and then not let them feel like I'm looking over their shoulder. So when before Creatures came out, even, um, it started to become a kind of social phenomenon. It, it drew this huge crowd of internet people back in the days when there was barely any internet. Um, <clears throat> and you can't manage that. You can't control what people do. And it's wrong to try to garner it all in and make profit out of it. So I just let them get on with it and they just did their own thing. And they've been doing it ever since. And I seem to have developed a kind of mythical status somehow or another because um, they know about me. They know I exist. But a lot of these people are second or third generation creatures users. You know, sometimes it's the children of people who were children when creatures came out who are now getting to know it and love it and, and interacting with it. So they know of me, but they don't know me necessarily. It's, it's often, you know, the old hands who know me personally um, and can call me Steve, you know. <laughs> um, but they don't need me, really. And in a way, being a myth, myth, mythical creature is kind, of, is kind of good. I mean, it's good for me because it means I don't have to explain myself too hard for anything new that I do. Uh, but it's good for them as well. I, I can, uh, I don't know. People have got in touch many, many, many times, thousands of times in the intervening decades. And, and the, the, my greatest joy, literally my greatest joy, is when someone writes to me to say that they became a biologist because of creatures or a computer scientist or a psychologist. And I love it when people tell me that, that somehow or another creatures shape their, their future and their career. And so, so that's my my biggest point of contact actually with the community is when they begged somebody for my email address so that they could write to me to tell me that they're now a professor of biology somewhere. <laughs> Fascinating stuff, Steve. Fascinating stuff. Well, the reason that I restarted this podcast was similarly we have a bunch of uh, eclectic listeners to these particular recordings, and you mentioned Discord. Mm-hmm. The Discord channel for the Biota podcast is a continuing point of just hearing people's life stories associated with how they got into this audio and this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I I do feel some degree of parallel having done this for nearly 20 years now. Yeah. 
In terms of, is there another thing on the horizon that you're looking at? Is there something that once you start doing Grandroids as release, do you foresee that it has to be 100% involving you or do you see things in the future that are, you know, potentially little shiny objects that might (laughs) take your interest? What are you still thinking? Oh, I I have a lifetime of interest left in, in just this one project. I mean, there's a trajectory to it. You know, this is not a thing in my mind. It's just the next step in a much bigger thing. Uh, like I said, I started I started making artificial life forms in 1978, um, or possibly 79. I can't remember, but they were very very simple. You know, they were plankton essentially, and they would evolve better better ways to be plankton. But you know, this, you, you you know yourself, things were pretty primitive uh, back then. So this was a uh, a one kil- kilobyte Z80, Z80, uh, four megahertz CPU computer. Hardly anybody in the world had, had such thing. And the one I had bore no resemblance to everybody else's because in the eight bit days, all computers were different. Um, and so there was no future in it. I just did it because, well, partly because I'd always been a biologist by nature and partly because I was training to be a teacher and I'd become fascinated by how children's minds develop. Um, so I started doing AI and A-Life in, in 78 when I bought my first computer. But everything since then has just been me making artificial life, artificial life forms in one form or another, often just for my own benefit. Sometimes I manage to make a bit of money out of them in education or games. Um, but there's no end to that progression as far as I'm concerned. I, I you know, I tackled some really hard problems with this one, which I suppose we may have time to talk about. Um, like, like biomechanics and so on. The creatures, the creatures are not animated. You know, the 3D, which is hard in itself, that, that massively amplifies the difficulty of being alive. Mm. Um, but they, they're not animated. They're driven by 60 or 70 muscles and they interact with a physics engine inside Unity. And so when they walk, they walk by pushing their feet down on the surface, and hopefully that causes them to be propelled forward. More often than not, it means they fall over or stub their toe, but um, it's incredibly hard to do that, um, to make a physics engine that was designed for blowing things up work for long kinematic chains of of muscles. But it was important to me because um, that was the next stage in my growth in terms of understanding how life worked was to deal with muscles. I actually spent the few years before I came to America, I was working in robotics um, with a little robot called Lucy, mm-hmm. uh, who is now in the Science Museum in London. I'm so proud of that. <laughs> the Science Museum was, was like an Aladdin's cave when I was nine. It was the most amazing place I had ever seen. And, and now something I made is in the Science Museum. I think that's pretty cool. But anyway, so Lucy was mostly designed to help me think about some ideas I'd had about the brain, particularly in terms of vision and so on, but also muscle. And and after Lucy, I spent several years trying to make better physical muscles for robots, um, which is really really hard. There are no good solutions to it. You know, our our muscles are incredibly sophisticated machines. You know, we just twitch an arm and we think well we just twitch an arm but stuff that goes on in order to make that possible isn't on 
and we have such power to weight ratio and um, there's nothing in the in the mechanical world that even approaches muscle so i tried to make these robot muscles um i did it the most successful technique was you know steam governors uh, the governor on a steam engine these balls that spin round and, and fly out well i used that technique to make a thing that could pull on a cable and it worked really, really well. It was incredibly powerful and supple and flexible and controllable, apart from the fact that every now and then it would explode mm. and, and send pieces of lead weight at me thousands of miles an hour. So it was way too dangerous. But but um, I'm going off on a tangent now. But but um, so, so I worked in the robotics world because sometimes it's better to make the virtual world and sometimes it's better for the world to come for free. Yeah. And um, the real world is incredibly complex, mind-bogglingly complex, and just trying to get vision to work in the real world is a really, really hard problem. But on the other hand, you get gravity and friction and volume and all that kind of stuff for free. Whereas in a 3D virtual world, there's not even any solidity. You know, objects just move through each other unless you go to a lot of trouble to stop them from moving through each other. But, but on the other hand... Sometimes it's better to do all the work to make believable virtual worlds so that you can simplify some of the problems a little bit uh, to deal with the actual science. So when I started this project, I made the fatal decision that I was not going to use animation. I was going to give these creatures real muscles and use the physics engine to, to make them walk and fall over and you know do stuff, interact with the world. And I did some experiments and it turned out to look feasible, but it actually turned out to be a great deal harder in practice than I was expecting. But it's important, you see, because I don't know, people don't necessarily think about this, but, but, you know, what does the brain do? The brain switches muscles. That's what it does. You know, there's a few other things, like it exudes hormones and and, uh, controls your capillaries and bloodstream and so on. But Almost everything the brain does is move muscle. Language, speech, all of that is just moving muscle. And yet people don't pay much attention to that. You know, in AI, there's virtually no attention paid to it, uh, unless you're a roboticist. You know, Rod Brooks and people like that pay attention to muscles. Um, but um, I did before he retired. But um, And yet that's the language of the brain. Muscles are what brains speak in. Um, so I got to the point where I had some ideas that needed me to speak in the language of the brain and do muscles. And so I started this project by making creatures that actually have to manipulate their muscles using their brain in order to walk. And <laughs> I kind of regret that because it turned out to be a really hard problem. So in terms of the stuff that you've learned in a kind of potted 10 minutes or less, what are, what are the top five things that you found in doing Grandroids? Um, well... There, there are three things that I went in with. You know, I, 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 I don't know how other people's minds work, but I always think in terms of analogies and metaphors. And, um, and when it comes to the brain, you need some analogies. You need some kind of metaphor to help you think about it. Like, um, a slight aside, but it's worth saying, I think that, you know, if you imagine the, think about the jet engine, you know, you can explain by the jet engine how it works in a single sentence. Um, it's a bit of a convoluted sentence, but you can do it. But if you actually go and look at a jet engine, you know, it's covered in pipes and valves and solenoids and God knows what. 
And if, if a jet engine just fell out of the sky on a desert island somewhere and people didn't know what it was for, it might actually take them a great deal of work to figure out what it does and what that one sentence explanation is. And the brain is like that too, except billions of times more complex. Um, you know, there's a hell of a lot of pipes and valves and solenoids in the brain, and we don't have that one sentence explanation. We just don't know what it is. We don't know what the basic engineering principles of the brain are. Um, <clears throat> and so you have to start with some ideas. You have to start with some metaphors and, and analogies that might be relevant, or at least might point you in the direction of something that's relevant. And so I started with three, two and a bit. And one, one of them was the notion of a servo motor. You know servo motors? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, not everyone's familiar with them. If they if play with a model aircraft or a model boat, they use a servo motor. They're incredibly cheap now. The, they are. Yeah. They're remarkable that I used to spend a good portion of my savings associated with buying these things, and they're now ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mass production is a wonderful thing, and, and they're very useful too. Lucy the robot used servo motors, but then I kind of had to cripple them to make them not quite as good as a, as a servo. But anyway, you know, it's, it's, that's a powerful cybernetic idea, the idea behind the servo. Mm. The mm. idea that you tell it where you want it to point, it knows where it's pointing, it works out the difference between the two, and decides what it needs to do to get to the goal, right? So it's a goal-oriented machine. And the, bra- the brain is definitely a goal-oriented machine. Um, you've watched, you've watched your, your girls learn to walk. Certainly. You know, they know what they want to do, don't they? Most definitely. You know, they don't just twitch muscles and see what happens. They, they have in mind what the end result should look like. And uh, something William James called idiomotor action. You know, you, mm. you just visualize the end result. Um, and, and, and also when you look at the brain, so again, I'll try to come, come back to where I was going with this, but, um, if you look at most AI, there's an assumption implicit in it that nobody ever says, but it's there, which is that the brain is kind of like, to the extent that AI pays any attention to the brain at all, the assumption is it's like a sausage machine. Mm-hmm. You, know, you put meat in at one end, it gets squished around in the middle, and sausages come out the other end. And that is not true. The brain is not designed like that. You can see it in the wiring diagram. It's not like that at all. It's not coming in, sensory stuff comes in at one end and motor stuff comes out the other. The motor stuff comes out where the sensory stuff went in. Mm. It's a two-directional thing. And servo motors are like that too, you know? If you put in a goal and the, and the motor knows where it's pointing, it can work out what to do to, to achieve the goal. But equally, if you move the arm of the servo physically, um, it'll try to get back to the goal. You know, it, it's a bi-directional thing. And so I started thinking about what happens when you chain servo motors together. And I actually built a robot aircraft until my intern crashed it mm. um, on TV <laughs> um, uh, to, to, to explore this, because an autopilot in a plane is basically a bunch of chained servos. Um, so that was that was one of my metaphors, is the brain like a bunch of chained servos? And then another one was maps. You know, we know that mm. the brain has maps. It, you, it maps things out in space in some fashion, um, like the visual cortex of the brain, is mapped out largely in retinotopic coordinates. It's the same mapping as the retina of our eyes, which makes sense. But later on in, in the visual system, it's not mapped out in retinotopic coordinates at all. It's some other 
thing, and eventually it becomes mapped out in object coordinates of some kind. Like, for example, if you there's a particular rare kind of brain damage that means you can't name vegetables anymore. Mm. You know? um, fruit and vegetable agnosia, um, which is a very, very specific <laughs> kind of a problem to have. You know, you can name everything else, types of car, you just can't name fruit and vegetables. Mm. But it suggests that the brain has mapped things out by type and there's a particular lesion in a particular spot in the temporal lobes of the brain that just damaged your ability to recognize vegetables. So, but maps are again an incredibly powerful metaphor for thinking about things in general. You know, you can put pins in a map and so you can record the state of something in a map and it has locality, things that are near each other, you expect to be near each other in some other way, you know? Certainly. Uh, and so I started thinking, well, what happens if you make servos out of maps? And and with the third thing, which I won't go into in great detail, but I learned from Lucy is about coordinate transforms. The idea of mapping as opposed to maps mm. is a powerful metaphor. And you see, I mean, you see that with real maps when you look at Mercator projection of the Earth. You know, Russia looks enormous because it's been squished out, stretched out at the top and bottom because you're trying to fit sphere, map it onto the plane. Certainly. Um, so, so, but, but vision has a lot to do with mapping coordinate spaces. And I was, I was very interested with, with Lucy trying to get her to recognize bananas from any angle. You know, how do we do that so naturally and easily? How do we know it's a banana when you look at it end on? It's not banana shaped. And I, I started to think, well, what coordinate frame does a banana look the same <clears throat> no matter which way you look at it? And, and it occurred to me that the answer is from inside the banana. Mm. So, in a way, perhaps, possibly, a lot of things in vision involve remapping things from one coordinate frame to another, and until you end up with things that are in the coordinate frame of the object itself, and then you can recognise them from any angle. And I don't know whether there's any truth in that at all, but it got me thinking. So I had those three three ideas: mm. coordinate frames and the transforms between them. Maps as a just a powerful metaphor for how to memorize things and relate things and you know associative memory and stuff and servos this bidirectional I call it yin and yang you, you know neuroscientists would talk about then afferent signals coming in from the senses and efferent signals going out towards the muscles mm. I, call, I call them yin and yang just to distance myself a little bit from some of the <laughs> <laughs> from some of the assumptions that go into that. Maybe. Um, so, so that's that's what I've spent the last ten years working on. Given those three metaphors, can I actually make a brain? Can I make a brain that can figure out how to steer your head and eyes and body to look at something? Can I use that to make a system that remembers, figures out where in space that thing that you just looked at is in terms of local landmarks and can I use mapping in the brain to store a memory of where you put your coffee um, in a literal cognitive map? Can I use those three ideas to make all of these things and to control sequences and muscle movements when you're walking uh, and um, learn your way around the landscape in the broader sense and how one area of your domain connects to other areas and stuff? And it turns out I can. Mm. I, I can do those things. And... This was all leading towards 
you know, my, my primary interest is consciousness. What, what is it? What does it mean to say that we have thoughts and hopes and ambitions and, and worries and stuff? And, and, um, we probably don't have time to talk about all of that, but, but, but one of the things that is necessary for consciousness is imagination, the ability mm. to experience something that isn't actually happening. Right? And so my ultimate goal was, can I make this system of servo-like maps um, produce planning and therefore the ability to visualize a world that doesn't exist yet? And I can just, <laughs> but I have at least another 20 years of work <laughs> to in that direction, there's no shortage of bright, shiny things to look forward to, and hopefully, I'll be able to carry a few people with me as I as I go down that road. Now that I have confidence in what I've been doing this past decade, if that answers your question, in a roundabout fashion, yeah, certainly. It's so, all about roundabout fashions. It is very definitely. <laughs> so, one of the topics that I was steered against when we were initially corresponding is associated <laughs> with the fact that now everyone's an AI expert, all you need is a YouTube channel and you can record yeah. your own pontifications with regards to the latest uh, chat GPT and these kind of things. <laughs> do you want to, as, as an elephant or a gorilla in the room, do you have anything to <laughs> to throw out well, there? Yeah, well, I can, I, can, I can mention my stance on the subject, mm-hmm. <laughs> although we don't have time for me to defend it very far, but I loathe the whole thing. I am... Mm-hmm furious about it uh, I despise it um, and I think people should be really ashamed of themselves and it, it's kind of sad in a way I mean I've, I've dealt with AI and AI people for 40 years um, and I know them to be good people they all go into this with great ambitions, they want to understand what it means to have a mind just like I do mm-hmm. um, but sooner or later they kind of have to lie to themselves about what that means, and they have to sell their soul to the devil um, in some way. And there seems to have been a kind of collision of those two things, that there is now actual devils to sell your soul to, um, and cheating has, is so far back in people's minds that they've forgotten it was ever cheating. Um, so, so the idea of chatbots and so on, you know, a chatbot is not intelligent. Beggars the term. If that's what you mean by intelligence, then we need another term for what dogs do. Right? Um, but they got to they got to all these feed forward neural networks and, and stuff by gradually letting go of the things they believed in and cheating and being inauthentic. And they cost, had to fund all this. You know, always money is somewhere at the the root of it. And you know, the startup culture from the 90s to now, the neoliberal world we live in requires you to lie, basically. You know, you, it makes you dishonest because you, you just convince yourself, well, if I just get some startups and seed capital, then I can do what I really want to do and it will really do the things I wanted it to do and tell us the things I wanted to know. Um, but it never actually happens. You just keep on selling your soul. For money, <clears throat> and you know, you, you, you'll have to talk to Jeff Hinton about this. You know, he's left Google um, to warn people about the dangers of his own his own work, um, and they are real dangers. I don't, for a second, believe that these 
chatbots and, and mid-journey and stuff are intelligent in any meaningful sense. They will never take over the world by becoming super intelligent. Not a chance. Um, but they are very, very dangerous things. And they're really going to put a lot of people out of work and disrupt, as, as they like to say in the Bay Area, the world in ways that people haven't thought through. And they should be ashamed of themselves. So <laughs> I want to see an end to it. I no longer call myself an AI researcher and just not having anything to do with it. <laughs> and, and the last AI, a life talk I gave was in Sussex and, and I walked into the cafeteria and someone said, tell me when we can start throwing the tomatoes at you. <laughs> and they did. And the, one of the PhD students just tore me to shreds and I still have no idea why. So, so I'm, I'm clearly not an AI researcher, an AI life researcher either. <laughs> for some, th- so for some reason, I did something wrong. Um, so I'm not an AI researcher. I'm not an AI life researcher. I'm, I uh, don't want any part of it, really. But it'll all fall apart. You know, both of us have been in this business a long time. We've seen these cycles of how we have the answer now. It's all going to change the world, and then it turns out not to be true. And this is not going to be true either. It'll change the world, but not in the ways that people anticipate. So that's my two penny worth on the subject of chat GPT. Do you, do you well, see Steve, it the same way? I, there are many metaphors that you have rolled in this period of time. My general survival is a very curious thing. And I kind of have ended up where I've ended up through that. Um, I have had a rather curious discussion about the Nuremberg trials and what people like Werner von Braun did when they moved to the US and these kind of things. I've had some <laughs> relatively curious discussions with ChatGPT, not indicative of intelligence or, but more indicative of actually my own foibles and flaws in my own thinking. <laughs> so if anything, it uh, left me in a puzzled sense that I wasn't anticipating when I first kind of moved into it. But I have had the opportunity to chat with some of the people that uh, have been involved with OpenAI and I do have a sense of their general trajectories and how this thing happened. I'm just more stunned by the fact that all you need is a YouTube channel now in order to be an AI, <laughs> right. effect, an AI expert. And I just wondered, yeah. all, all, all these years I've wasted when I just should have had a YouTube channel and mm, pontificated. Yeah, but it's solved the problem. All exactly. you need to do is tell people how to write prompts. Exactly. And you become an AI expert. In any case, but I do understand the nature because I've talked to you previously and I've had the opportunity to talk to you previously that um, the the nature of a tapestry and the rich depth that one has in one's own exploration in this can never really be replicated in, um, you know, what one sees elsewhere. But I did want to have the opportunity to chat with you, Stephen. Thank you for humouring me sufficiently for us to get this far. Um <laughs> I would genuinely love to have a, a kind of ongoing periodic conversation with you. One of these things, these conversations always leave me feeling is, uh, I don't know, it, it shouldn't be another decade before I get in contact with you and we try <laughs> right. to chat again. I think you're certainly, um, the audience we have here is unique and probably incredibly sympathetic to your general perspective. Uh, so I would like the opportunity to have a chat with you, maybe in five years' time, um, <laughs> to see where Grandroids has, has ended up and uh, whether you have become the, you know, the multi-millionaire through Patreon that uh, no doubt would happen as your, um, as your fans get to actually finally contribute in a, in a monthly basis. And it does, it's a very fascinating model. I mean, certainly I've had a few friends that have 
moved on to Patreon and now survive remarkably well through it. So I do oh, hope good. that the same will hold true for your endeavors with this. Mm, Any final it. thoughts you want to throw out there before we conclude this conversation? <laughs> well, on, on, on the topic of when we, when we three meet again, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, you're right. I mean, I, I have just in the last five minutes burned my boats <laughs> by saying incredibly um, rude things about AI and stuff. And that it would be nice to have the opportunity to explain why I think those things and, and to, to go back in history a little bit more. I mean, you know, the stuff you were saying about um, chatting to chat GPT and, and feeling unnerved. You know, Chris Langton felt that way about his work in A-Life. Certainly. And then I, I, hmm? Certainly, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, it was true with Joseph, Joseph Weisenbaum's Eliza 40 years ago. Um, it's uh, the uncanny part happens, but um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to talk about. The, the whole AI thing, um, especially for old people like me, who've been around the block a few times. You know, we've be, we've been through a lot of these cycles, these boom and bust things. Um, but I, yeah, I would like <laughs> I would like an opportunity to defend myself. <laughs> now I've opened my fat gob. <laughs> and trashed most of my friends in the AI business. <laughs> what I find fascinating is the likes of musicians and authors and things like this that are coming out now and saying that the the end of the world is nigh and that they're stealing copyright and these kind of conversations mm. because, it, as you say, through the boom-bust phases, it takes a particular period in history for you know, rappers and filmmakers and to all agree that something is collectively a bad technology. So as we have, well, I don't know, probably an hour or so before I have to go back to my daughters, um, do you want to distill down some of your thoughts or should we just chat again in maybe a year or so? Well, we can try. I mean, I'm not sort of prepared for it, but we we can certainly try. Uh, We we can talk on for a bit and if it doesn't work out, then we can just cut it. I'm sure people will love it no matter what we do. So if you're, you're the kind of person where I think even reading the phone directory would get people to listen to. And now we have Steve Grant reading the telephone directory. So in terms of, in terms of the immediacy, in terms of the, I mean, certainly when I floated this idea of, I think what do they call it? Hallucinations now. We're, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you've played with these things, but the, the certainty that these algorithms have. Uh, for things that are clearly incredibly wrong for those of us that know anything about anything. (laughs) Fascinating stuff. In terms of your perspective, is there a way to distill this down? I mean, I think your reference to historical legacy and experience through historical legacy certainly resounds very strongly with me as well. Any final thoughts? You want final thoughts or you want to keep talking? Let's keep talking. (laughs) All right. Let's keep talking, see where it goes. Most definitely. <laughs> I'm, I'm down for that. Hallucinations. You mentioned hallucinations. Mm-hmm. You mean in the context of ChatGPT and so on hallucinating? Well, yes, that they claim things <coughs> to be facts that are clearly very far from mm. the truth. See, see that, that is actually the really interesting part of these new AI models. And I, I'm being rude and horrible to people, but actually that is quite interesting. Um not so much in ChatGPT, which more or less hallucinates just because it's, you know, creating a mashup of millions and millions of human thoughts. You know, it's not it's just regurgitating a half-chewed meal in, in a sense. But um, Midjourney and and what are the other ones called? Staple Diffusion stuff. Those um, art 
generating or image generating systems, they hallucinate in a much more interesting way, I think. I don't understand them fully. Um, but I think it's that, that is a good thing. And we need people to pay attention to that because although it does it in a fundamentally and radically different way from the way we do it, that ability to hallucinate is central to what it means to be us. You know? It's the ability to generate things that didn't exist before and entertain them, to hold them in your mind. And, and neuroscience is starting to tackle this. I mean, the idea has been around one way or another for a very long time, but um, people didn't pay much attention to the idea of the brain generating information until more recently, but now it's becoming a more better analogy and, and you know, we have technology we can use to, to illustrate it. So, so when Midjourney creates a, a picture of the Mona Lisa as a wrapper or whatever, and then gives a, you know, 19 fingers, and there is a, there is a parallel, I think, with what goes on in, inside our brains when we dream, for example. It's a very similar kind of process and for similar reasons you know as i understand these generative ai things which is not very much and um, they're essentially um denoisers you know if, if, if you treat, train a neural network to clean up the noisy junk out of a nearly clean image it'll produce a cleaner image it knows which dots don't belong there and it will remove them um, so if you then train it on an even noisier image, it will be able to clean it back to a, a, a somewhat noisy image. You know? And so as I understand it, the, the, the basic idea is you train a network that can essentially denoise very, very noisy images, and then you give it pure random noise or, or slightly tailored pure random noise if you're using prompt. Um, and so what it does is invent the noise-free image out of nothing. And and that's how you end up with really beautiful high-resolution images because it's just cleaning up the noise from random noise until it then cleans up that noise and it cleans up that noise and it gradually converges on a noise-free image of the Mona Lisa doing rap and having 19 fingers. And I think that is a powerful idea it just mustn't be taken too too seriously and literally, as the way that happens has some parallels with the brain. But it's, but it's good. So 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 I can say that positively <laughs> about this new generation of AI machines. And in terms of, I mean, one of the things I like to throw back when I talk to people such as yourself is, does that thinking change anything associated with your perspective with regards to how you would create these things in the future? Um. No, it conforms with my perspective. So that's why I like that aspect of modern um, transformer-type neural network. Um, it, 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 you know that that what I'm what I'm really interested in personally is imagination, imagery. Mm. As as the brain give rise to things that don't exist, and because that's what is necessary for consciousness for us to be us. Um, is one of the things that's necessary. Uh, and my, my um, overriding research question has always been, are the necessary conditions for consciousness also the um, sufficient 
conditions for consciousness, right? So if you think about what it means to be a conscious being, there's obviously a lot of equipment that you need in order to do those things. You, know, you can't be conscious of the past if you don't have any memory. Um, you can't be conscious of the future unless you have the ability to make predictions and disconnect your internal state from the external state. Um, and so you can look at the brain in terms of which bits of equipment it needs in order to do conscious things. So I, I don't personally think consciousness, consciousness, I don't even say it, consciousness is a thing at all. I think the question is not what is consciousness, but which kinds of consciousness are there? Um, and so it's perfectly reasonable to call a thermostat conscious at some pathetically trivial level. It knows how warm the room is. It knows whether the heating is on or off. And it decides to turn the heating on when it gets cold. And it has some capacity for some other thing. And, but, you know, you look at a cow, for example, they probably don't worry about their pension plans. Um, they probably don't worry about whether the children will have enough to eat when they grow up because they probably can't see that far into the future. But they can see a little way into the future. They obviously live quite complex social lives. And so cows have some kinds of consciousness, um, and humans have kinds of consciousness that cows probably don't, because we do fret about the far distant future, even the future beyond our own death. Um, so there are these necessary things for consciousness. And so my research program, such as it is, is to try to emulate those um, simulate those necessary conditions. And the question is, are they sufficient conditions? Is that all you need? Because you clearly can't be conscious without them. So does having them mean you're conscious? And I don't know the answer to that. But I personally think that's the truth, that just having the equipment is all that's required. But most people have this magico-religious attitude to consciousness, they think there must be some weird and wonderful quantum mechanical electromagnetic weirdo stuff going on. Uh, so um, I don't, but I can't answer the question. I don't know what how you would even try to answer the question. So I try to make things that do the, the necessary conditions. And then I'll leave the question to philosophers and um, to try to decide whether they're sufficient conditions. But, you know, uh, the the fact that these generative things can make high quality images out of noise, I think is a step in the right direction in terms of understanding the philosophy of the necessary and sufficient conditions of consciousness. So I, I applaud that and just doesn't do it the same way our brains do. Does that make sense? The idea of creativity through this, I think, is absolutely fascinating because that's certainly in part what I think about in terms of emergent behaviours coming out of you know simulations. Mm -hmm. It's almost a representation of creativity in some fundamental sense. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was something that uh, struck me from your conversation. Do you imagine eventually these alpaca creatures will have paint on their hooves and will be doing pictures? How do you see creativity <laughs> emerging out of Grandroid specifically? Oh, uh, uh, well, I, I don't accept in the way that I'm sometimes creative. You know, sometimes random noise is a hugely important aspect of even the greatest creativity. Some of us, that's all we've got. <laughs> we just stumble over things, come up with ideas out of nowhere just because we happen to be dreaming about some weird thing in the middle of the night and, and we're left with a feeling and then we've 
we figure out something useful we can do with that feeling. So um, the, the creatures may well end up with creative solutions to problems. They might walk in a weird way or something, but they won't have thought it through. Um, but, you know, creative intelligence is kind of at the top of a huge edifice, thousands of layers of other stuff that has to go on before it. And so I'm only dealing with the very bottom layers. How do you walk? How do you look where you're going? How do you remember where you put your coffee? Um, and and how, at least in principle, can you think, I'd like a cup of coffee. I know where the cup is. I'll go there. I'll pick up the cup. And then I'll take it to where the coffee is. And I'll pour a cup of coffee. And I had to make simple plans. And that's that's the height of my ambition right now. And I don't even know whether the creatures can do that yet. They can in principle, but in practice, there are so many variables, so many things to tweak, um, that it's, it's very hard to debug. I'm sure you have plenty of experience of trying to debug complex simulation. It's a an ongoing passion of mine. So <laughs> let's, uh, one of the things which I think led into Grand Roads, I can't remember because I remember we were discussing this and I seem to recall... You released some, uh, almost something to do with neurochemistry or something like that, open source, perhaps. I might have you convoluted with another um, participant. But is there any neurochemistry in Gradroids? Is there anything? Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about that. Okay, well, yeah, there's actually currently 66 neurochemicals, 43 reactions involving them, 116 receptors, mm -hmm. 28 emitters, 11 organs. Uh, 21,800 uh, neural columns, which are sort of little circuits of neurons, um, 113 brain maps, and 440 links in the connectome. So, this is, yeah, uh, the chemistry is a big part of, of intelligence in it, what I call intelligence anyway, the low-level stuff in the natural world. You know, if, if we didn't have things like adrenaline, um, uh, cortisol, um, we wouldn't be intelligent. And, and so a lot of these chemicals are essentially the the global variables in the system. You know, they're broad acting uh, and they can just advertise some state and it's immediately available to every cell in the in the body. And, and so you need that. You need some kind of global computational structure, which for us is done by enzymes and uh and neurochemicals and hormones. Um, and although in school we get taught that enzymes are there to break down other, other enzymes and, or, or fuse pro proteins together to make bigger proteins and, and so on, which is for, for, um, energetic reasons. You know, we get taught about digesting our food, how, how different enzymes in our, our spit, um, break down carbohydrates and so on. But nobody ever really mentions the fact that this is also computational. Um, the, that even those enzymes are important signaling systems in our bodies. Um, and melatonin comes to mind. You know, melatonin that you, that starts building up in, 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 emitted by the brain as you, as the evening draws on and helps you to sleep. Um, and people take it for jet lag and stuff. Well, most of the melatonin in the body isn't made in the brain at all. It's made in every cell, and it's part of the um, metabolic, metabolic chemistry of the body, and it plays a part 
it, it plays various parts, but but one of them is antioxidant, and and people are starting to get really interested in that. The fact that we actually need to go out in the sunlight um, in order to build these antioxidants in our cells. Uh, but so on the one hand, you know, melatonin exists in every cell of the body and plays an important role in the mitochondria as a, a an antioxidant and plays part a part in part in metabolism. But on the other hand, eventually it got turned into a signaling hormone and gets produced by the brain when it's dark in the evening. And assuming we're not all sitting watching our iPhones and seeing all the blue light, we start to feel sleepy. And so it controls behavior. You know, it controls important things about being an actual animal rather than just being a trillion single-celled animal. Uh, because it's got co-opted, or I, I presume it's got co-opted by evolution to do this signaling job, and then so it's part it's part of one of our biological clocks, of which we have several, and they coordinate all sorts of things about how we think, what we want, you know, whether we want to hibernate in the winter and um, when we're at our most intelligent during the day and, and so on. So so there's this computational aspect to biochemistry, which is really, really important. And I don't think you can have any kind of biologically inspired, intelligent organism without some kind of global computation. So in, in this, in this project, I actually came up with a really quite good chemistry and then had to abandon it, sadly. Um, cause in, in creatures, I just had things that I called chemicals, but they were just a number, basically, how much of the chemical existed. Many moles of it, and then other genes to describe the reactions that those chemicals could undergo, how one would transform into another. And that was as good as I managed to do in the 90s. And this time around, I thought I'd try and do it a little more sophisticated. So I came up with a a system that's much more like real enzymes, where you have a chain of um, building blocks, like Lego bricks, and it's the structure of that chain that determines which things the chemical will react with and the chemicals that it reacts with are also made of the same building blocks and so you have a system of lego bricks that can take another bunch of lego bricks and split it in two or take two lego brick chunks and, and add them together and it were really well except for the fact that i'm not bright enough to actually invent a complete biochemistry from it um, it's too complex to actually hand engineer um, the chemistry I needed in order for the rest of my brain model to work. So I had to give it up in the end, throw it out, and go back to much more like I had in creatures. Um, so the genes still dictate what chemicals are present um, and the reactions that they can undergo, and evolution could, in principle, change those things, create new chemical networks, but they don't have that elegant Lego brick structure, sadly. Um, but, it, but it's all important. You, you need directed communication and global communication for any complex network-based system. You know, I think that you know, the cyberneticists from the 1940s would agree with that. It's necessary in organizations. It's necessary. You, know, you have to have a bulletin board somewhere where you can put notices that everybody can read. But you also need to be able to just tell somebody in your department something. You know, so it's that that division between broad-based and directed communication is very important. If that answers your question about chemistry. Certainly, in a roundabout fashion. (laughs) 
You raise a number of really interesting questions here, Steve. My view is that our listenership are probably as much Steve Grand obsessed as your uh, periodic fans that get in contact. I do think it's probably better that we continue this conversation uh, at a later stage and give the audience the opportunity to frame some questions, which I'll certainly collect via Discord or through any other means if people want to email them to me. Because I think, it's a, as you say, it is at a turning point in our in our kind of collective knowledge history. Um, and you hold some very interesting parts to this discussion. So I don't want to ruin the opportunity to have a conversation with you in uh, a year or two's time about some of these issues. <laughs> I have nothing particularly pressing to discuss other than to wish you all the best with regards to Grand Droids. And uh, I would dearly like to check in with you in a short period of, well, a year or two, say, <laughs> to see how things were going. But thank you very much for the opportunity to chat today, Steve. It's been a real pleasure. You're welcome, Tom. It's, it's, um, it's been too long. <laughs> it has been. It has been. One of the things I've done over the past couple of years is simulate London in 1940. Oh, yes, um, I heard about that, but I don't know about it. Tell me about it. So the, I have I have literally written code for 27 years now and still have the same code, um, which is one of the you, – you talk about me being an open source aficionado to get contribution. I just enable it so I can continue to touch stuff that I worked on 27 years ago. Um, but one of the problems that – I kind of came to this just before my daughters arrived, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with the history of – well, I'm sure you're familiar with some aspect of the Home Guard and England in oh, yeah. 1940 and these kind of ideas – but there was always a fascinating, there's a kind of fascinating use of simulation with regards to military simulation. And actually, ironically, digging into this, particularly with regards to football hooliganism, I've found people that I've worked with in simulation 20 odd years ago are now published in these books, um, uh, written academically on even things like football hooliganism. So anyway, the idea of London in 1940 through COVID became such a, there are many books written about London in that period of time, uh, fictional books, but very mm -hmm. much people kind of delving into that. And it was a space where I'm not, I'm not a Londophile at all. I never lived in London, never thought I probably would even, um, there was potential for me to live there with work potentially, um, before COVID happened. But I found a community of, of home guard folk for folks that had pillboxes and a variety of other things and, that all tied into this. And when you create a simulation, sometimes you look for an existing community through that. But uh, it was a fascinating opportunity to get original maps and then see where the deltas were in the information that I could actually get access to. Um, but as I lived here and as my daughters were born and as a return to England became less and less on the cards, and also my time just became taken by my daughters more than anything. So I've left it out there in a source code form and someone stumbled across it and an Apple employee contacted me through the week. And I realized that this is just analogous to the stuff that you do in some regard, except I kind of leave these things out there for people to discover in the world. So I would dearly love to have the opportunity just to have a casual chat with you at some time about some of these ideas. But unfortunately, the bio recordings are very neatly structured, although I'm currently chatting with a fellow called Emi Khan, uh, who's based out of Sweden, but also has history in the UK. Um, mm. And he allows us to kind of weave a variety of different conversations. So I maybe throwing you back in the mix with someone like Imi uh, would be very useful. And I know um, I chatted with a, uh, a fellow who's very much a Steve Grant fan as well, who's really the reason that even after your initial rejection of us talking, I came back and said, I've got a, 
I'm going to reach out to the human that is Steve Grant <laughs> and appeal to him <laughs> desperately to get involved. So I think probably rather than forcing it in the next 40-odd minutes, I should allow us both to have some cognitive uh, breathing room and then get back in contact at some stage in the future to talk more about these fascinating topics. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm interested in your, your 1940 thing. Well, <laughs> it's a thing that I've just left there now. I realised that the, the problems with regards to getting abstract things like phone directories and actually simulating large-scale... I mean, it is intelligent agents in a simulated environment, fundamentally. But, mm. you know, the to have these maps for the exterior of these buildings is wonderful, but the interiors are really the critical part. And I had developed ways of simulating the interiors of of office spaces and suburban environments, but yeah. mapping it back onto London, the eccentricities. I've got books here about London architecture of the period. <laughs> um, and it's just absolutely fascinating stuff, but really it's, you know, five to 10 orders of magnitude above what I could do as a hobby. So I've what, just what left it the out objective? there. What, what uh, the objective was, um, I read, I've read a series of books. I have a general fascination with the second world war and mm-hmm. through COVID, uh, a very unique thing happened, which is a bunch of people that had extensive, huge book collections on eclectic topics decided that that was the right time to sell because uh, obviously, you know, we were going through a, a global phenomena which was completely unwritten and I think certain people decided that it was time to get rid of their book collections. So for a bibliophile, it was the worst possible opportunity <laughs> to start buying heavily in a variety of different areas. And thankfully... um or well, not thankfully, thankfully is the wrong term here. Um, the people who were willing to sell me these books actively looked on my behalf as well. So <laughs> I ended up with this, I've got a substantial quantity of home guard <laughs> related ma- material. Exactly. No, it's, it's <laughs> insane now. And I don't know what my daughters are going to do with it. Now I've just, it moved into kind of fatherly guilt. <laughs> so I realized that <laughs> I'd have to sell these things on to my daughters in some sense. Like, why do I have a, why do I have Luftwaffe manuals from, you know, I mean, literally I've got a flight map um, that a Luftwaffe crew used through the Battle of Britain. I mean, it was just absolutely insane, the things that I have in my collection. Um, but very much actually getting agent-based modeling data as well. So I've left it there out in the public domain for someone to actually come across it in the foreseeable future and hopefully get excited about it. I was very hopeful that this fellow at Apple might pick some of it up, but it was just a... A, a premature flirtation, let's say. Um, so, yes, I would dearly love the opportunity to have a chance to chat with you as a simulator through these conversations potentially as well, because mm. I think you have a very unique uh, appreciation. And truth be told, for probably the past decade, I've had very thankfully a fellow called Bob Mottram, who is a huge oh, Steve Grant Bob. fan. Yes, um, and, yeah, unfortunately, Bob's father passed away um, uh. recently. And Bob's father was... Uh, a powerhouse in the field of cactus and succulents in the UK. Um, so Bob has kind of transitioned from being botherable associated with <laughs> writing, I don't know, three years worth of code for me um, <laughs> to being very much, you know, focused on his, his own stuff currently, which is perfectly understandable. Um, but yes, it'd be wonderful to just have the opportunity to chat. I don't unfortunately travel um, anymore, but you know, the potential to, uh, see you on location or for you to see me on location here. Do you ever get to Las Vegas? Um, I do occasionally. Well, I used to when I was up in Flagstaff because it's not all that far. It's not that far, yes. And uh, so when I've had visitors, I've, I've gone to Vegas just to show them around what a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre city It's surreal. It's very <laughs> surreal. I don't uh, I mean, it's where my wife's family 
or at least her sisters ended up, which is how we ended up here. Uh, because when it came to having two daughters, the thought of having aunts was better than the kind of uncles that my brothers would would offer them in Australia. So we decided <laughs> that uh, we still had a house here too. So we uh, that's a longer story for another time. Uh, but we ended up back here in a in a place, and the, the girls love their aunts, and you know, it QED for living in Las Vegas. But you you do feel at the on the end of the earth perpetually, mm-hmm. perpetually. Yeah, it's a long way to anywhere, isn't it? It most definitely is. But I feel <laughs> I probably need to wrap this conversation up to throw it out to the audience and get them to contribute uh, topics back. But it's been a real pleasure catching up with you. Do you still? I mean, do you still keep in contact with anyone in the UK? You used to be. You know, used to be Richard Dawkins connected. Used to be a bunch of folks connected. Are you still in contact with any of these people? Well, not really. Uh, when I moved from Flagstaff down to here, which I did just for you know financial reasons, it's cheaper mm-hmm. down in the desert. Then I around then I stopped using Facebook, and so all sorts of people you would know are on Facebook, on my Certainly. Facebook friends, but I don't use them. I did. I did meet up with Richard Dawkins. He came to Phoenix to give a talk a few years ago. Oh. And um, so I went to his talk. <laughs> he was quite surprised to see me. Yes. <laughs> Suddenly walking. Yes. Whatever out. happened to Steve Grant? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was struggling to remember my name, but um, but we went for a drink afterwards, and that was really nice. Very good. Um, Very good. So, um, anyway, I've got to get back to my daughter, Steve. It's been a pleasure chatting. Look okay, to I'll get the audio out, and then. I'll gather together whatever questions I get. All right, yes, we can do an AMA or whatever they call them these days. Amen, what the kids call these things today. Anyway, (laughs) I'll talk to you soon, Steve. Take (laughs) care. See you, Tom.